Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 4. Very shortly, we will be reading verses 2 through 6. Let us read the words of Paul to the church at Colossae. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door to us for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. May God bless this reading of his word. I think that there is a true sense as we are closing up the book of Colossians. What's going to happen after this in Colossians is going to be a series of sort of business-like material as Paul is going to greet the church and tell them to expect people and tell them people who are saying hi to them. This is sort of ending the exhortation part of Colossians. And I think it's fitting then today uh, we draw to a close Looking back over the letter, I think that the high point of the letter, the summation of all that Paul was trying to communicate to the Colossians, probably came back in chapter 3 and verse 17. Paul writes, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If it's true that 317 is sort of the high point of the letter, we would need to have certain things embedded in us before we understood the importance of that verse. We'd need to go back and and understand what the importance of Jesus was. If we're supposed to do everything in the name of Jesus, why is he so terribly important? Why single him out? How do we come to know this Jesus? Is there anything else that we need? How in the world can we have this sort of dedication And as you go through the book of Colossians, you find that Paul is providing answers to these even before they're asked. He talks about who Christ is and and his great exaltation in 115 through 20. He talks about how he has done work for us in reconciling us to God and redeeming us from the nature and the fallenness of the world. Paul talks about how he has struggled being sent out by Christ to be an emissary and an ambassador for Christ to bring the gospel to people who have never heard it before. Chapter 2 begins a long discussion on the sufficiency of Christ alone, that it is him alone who brings you close to God. It is him alone who can provide a sense of satisfaction and settlement and peace in the world that you can find nowhere else. Chapter 3 then talks about what we are to do. How can you have this sort of dedication to Christ? Well, you can have it. You can have it because Christ has made you new again. You can have it because you are not the old self. You can put away the vices of the old life and you can place upon yourself the virtues of Jesus Christ. And so you can do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last two weeks, we've been talking about how we do this in deed. So in the deeds that we do, in working with our families, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, fathers to children, children to their parents, We talked about how we are to walk in those relationships. We talked last week about how we are to walk in the deeds that we do for masters and in in leading over servants. And so it's fitting then, if Paul says, in word and deed, whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we come today to talk about no longer works, no longer deeds, but our words, how we are to speak. 
Paul provides practical exhortations on the two acts listed, but today we are specifically looking at what it means to speak in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means we speak both to God and man because Jesus, because of Jesus and about the things of Jesus. So first, what we are going to do is look at what it means to be having speech toward God, that is our prayer toward God. Sometimes we think of God simply as a powerful deity. He's a guy who sits up there that kind of pulls the strings. He was the creator of the world. He is powerful above all things, but he is, he is a sort of a distanced deity. He is somebody who makes things happen, but he doesn't personally interact with us. We can even go and read passages of Scripture that sound something like this. Psalm 104, 1 through 8. Blessed, or bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. That is a high and magnificent God. And you can even call him my God as well. But there's a sense in which when we think of God that way, when we think of him simply as a distant deity, as somebody who is well above us and high in power and might, we forget how personal God is for us. He is not simply an impersonal force that holds the galaxies together, that makes the sun rise, that makes rocks hard and water wet. Rather, Almost always, these statements about the power and the majesty and the transcendence of God are crouched in language that is intensely personal. God does not just care for his people in general, either. Even though it is personal language, he's not just talking about his people. He's not talking about people the way Stalin might talk about his people, where he can kill numerous millions of them because of the good for his people. God doesn't work like that. God doesn't care about his people in general so much as he cares about his people in specific. He cares about you and he cares about me. The Psalms are not only filled with God's great promises to his people, but about his care and protection over his individual servants as well. In other words, our God is an intensely personal God. To pray to him, to speak to him, then, is to honor him as he has revealed himself as Father. So, as Paul has said here, let our prayers be first steadfast. Let our prayers be steadfast. Our prayers to God should be ever-present and persistent. So, some of this is just common theology. It, it, it flows from everything else that we know of God. We are, Paul says, the temple of God. The Spirit lives within us. Jesus Christ has died for our sin. He has taken our sin as far as the east is from the west. There is therefore no boundary. There is no distance problem because God is with us. And Christ has himself opened the pathway for us to know God as Father. He is personal. There are no boundaries. There is no distance. You should pray to your Father. Your, your prayers then should be ever-present and continuous. 
But steadfastness means more than just praying continually. It certainly means that you are to be persistent in your prayer. That's not number two. That's just part of steadfast. You're to be persistent in your steadfastness. I don't want to confuse anybody. I know you guys take diligent notes. And steadfastness means not giving up on prayer. Listen, it's, it's very easy for you to get discouraged. You have multiple good things that you want in life. We're not even talking about like wasteful things, like I want a Corvette, which if you're going to ask for a car, ask for a better car than that. But nevertheless, we're not even talking about like lame prayers where you're just purely praying for things that will please your flesh. I mean, you can pray for good things. You can pray for the salvation of a child or a parent. You can pray for health to come back to somebody who is riddled with cancer and an intense pain. And God keeps those answers from you. Or, frankly, the answer is just a flat-out no. He doesn't do always the good things that we ask. These things can have a debilitating effect They can leave you timid in your prayers, uncertain whether God will say yes to them or not. It can leave you certainly inconsistent, assuming that God does not care or that he simply doesn't listen to you. But friend, God does care. He does listen. But please, under under the assumption that God is good and powerful, God knows better than you what is truly good. We're not, we're not here talking about what is good versus bad, but what is good versus what is best. And God intensely knows what is best for you. He knows what is best for you. He knows your past better than you do. He knows your future better than any prognosticator can ever make known to you. Those prayers left unanswered are not instances of God not caring, but rather of God caring too much to give you a scorpion when you ask for an egg. As Paul said, in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? If God has already given to you the most precious thing that he could possibly give you, why would he withhold any good thing from you? The answer is that he won't. So when you are persistent in prayer, friend, realize that those things that you are not having answered immediately are not being answered because it's better for God to tell you no than it is for him to tell you yes in those things. By faith, we realize that our unanswered prayers are best left unanswered. And sometimes that means the good things that you pray for, you will not receive the answer for that you seek. You pray for healing that doesn't come. You pray for salvation that is not sent God is good, mighty, and wise. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Be persistent in your prayer for those things. Further and along these same lines, I would ask that you don't delay prayer. Don't put off prayer. When someone needs prayer, don't tell them that you will pray and put it off for a later time. Memory and duty is going to wipe those things out. You're going to get busy with other things. Your brain is going to fail you. I promise you. You will forget to pray for those people more times than you will remember to. It doesn't mean that it's always possible, but when it's possible, pray in the moment for those people. Be steadfast in that. When you hear that someone is sick, pray for them. When you see a news event, pray about it. When you hear of lost people acting like lost people, even in the midst of their atrocities, pray for them and for those who are afflicted. Now, you need to be very clear about this. God knows all things before they happen. 
And so you need to erase in your brains right now that prayer is meant to sort of newsflash God about what's going on. This is not God as a general back at the base while we're on the front lines sending him messages back about what the war looks like. God doesn't need you for that. Rather, prayer is not for God, but prayer is for us. So that God can show his greatness to us. Listen, what happens when you see something coincidental? What happens when you see somebody who is actually racked with cancer get better under chemo? You get a promotion at work. Your marriage, which was rocky just six months before, is, is starting to get stronger and stronger. You have a good day fighting a sin that you're always tempted to fall into. What happens outside of prayer? Outside of prayer, you are tempted to consider these things simply as natural due to the skill of, of doctors, the just reward for your own hard work, the advice of good counselors, or the strength of your will. You are tempted outside of prayer to think of these things by the means of which God uses them instead of being from God himself. God can use science. God can use your hard work. God can use good counsel. But it is God who gives those things. He is the source of all of it. And if you are steadfast in prayer, you will be better able to see these good things as gifts from God and not to confuse the source of those good things for the means by which he gives them. So therefore, and secondly, we are also called to be watchful in prayer. Be watchful in prayer. The one who is watchful in prayer is able to see God's kindness, his ability to heal, his ability to reconcile, and his strength in all these things. Our being watchful is not simply looking out for things to pray about, although it is certainly that. But it is also the realization that God cares specifically for the requests of his children. But being watchful is not this in and of itself. It is also seeing the fruit of our prayer. It is recognizing that when our prayers are answered, that those answered prayers are due to God and God alone. Being watchful in prayer means that we are continually not confusing the means by which God answers things for God himself. It keeps us from idolatry. It keeps us from jealousy. It keeps us from longing for things and finding answers in things that cannot possibly provide them. Prayer is not given so that we can report news and personal feelings to God, but rather to remind us where our ultimate hope belongs in God through Christ alone. This, of course, means that we must also, and thirdly, be thankful. We must be thankful. God will answer prayer, and he will keep things from you that will be no good for you. Prayer is a rightful reminder that we have nothing without God. All good gifts come from him. Medicine, technology, science, arts, health, beauty, any financial resources that you might be provided. Comfort, provision, consolation, friendship, salvation, none of these things come outside of God giving them to you. No matter the form in which they come. It doesn't matter if science is what provides your healing to you. You only have science because God is good and orderly. None of these things exist outside God's providential care for you. 
If you are continually in prayer, you'll be less likely to confuse, again, the means for the source. You'll be less likely to only praise good counsel when you know that such counsel is only given to you by God. You'll be less likely to praise science for all of the technological advancements when you know that ultimately that is a gift of God to mankind. Watchful prayer, then, fuels our thankfulness. Our thankfulness to God is no minor detail. Listen, we think that correct confession and good theology of us is of immense importance. That these things are prerequisite to actually knowing the Lord. To know the Lord, you need to know who he is, and that means you have to have good theology. And to know the Lord, you have to confess who he is, and that means you have to make a good confession. We think that those things are indispensable, but I'm telling you, you cannot possibly have either of those two things without being thankful to God. Thankfulness is no minor issue, and it is certainly not a minor detail. It is the one who truly knows the Lord who is thankful for him. And the more that we are in continual, watchful prayer, the more thankful we will be. And finally, and fourthly, our prayers should be kingdom-focused. What Paul asks for here is not so much for himself. You could read this, although Paul is in prison, and when he says that they would open a door, that could mean that Paul wants the doors of his prison open, that he might be able to walk out and leave. It could very well be that he is asking for freedom. But even if he is, it is clear that Paul's heartbeat, even within captivity and imprisonment, is for the kingdom. He asks for opportunities, not for freedom. Some of this Some have suggested that this is just a plea for freedom, but listen to Paul's words in Philippians 2. Excuse me, Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. Writing from prison, he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it, it has become known, the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Those are not the man, that's not the words of a man who is saying, I really have to have my freedom. He's saying, my imprisonment was for good. Let it be known to you. You are not to be sad for my imprisonment. You are not to be contrite for me. You can pray for my freedom, but only insofar as that Christ might be known through it. He will write later, later to the Philippians in chapter 4. He has learned contentment, whether being brought up high and exalted or being placed in chains. It doesn't matter. His contentment and his contentment is directly linked to his ability to preach the gospel, to make Christ known to people. Therefore, his prayer is always kingdom-focused. You see, Paul's chains are fine with him so long a door for the gospel is opened. How does your prayer life match up? What kind of things do you actually pray for when you pray? This isn't one of those situations where I'm, I'm saying this so that I can give you disapproving daddy looks, right? But it's honestly to encourage you to refocus your prayer life. I do want you to pray all the time and you can take minor requests before God. But your request should be kingdom focused. Listen to what James says in James 4. James asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask 
and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As in James takes his people to task, first of all, because they don't pray for the things they want. They think that they can get the things that they need and they want through force. But secondly, because when they do pray, man, they just pray for their own selfish needs. They do not pray with the things of God in mind. He says that they are adulteresses, seeking love from the world and not from their husband, God. What's worse, they go to their husband to ask for the means to commit that adultery. There is an antidote to this, though. You are to pray, but pray for the kingdom. Pray focused on what God is doing in the world and not simply for your own selfish desires. Paul longs to declare the mystery of Christ, the center of the gospel for the Gentiles, and to do so clearly. God is honored by this. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25-33, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, What you will eat or what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I'm telling you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What Paul, or what Jesus says here, he says, listen, don't worry about food, don't worry about clothing, don't worry about drink. This is not 21st century America that he is only speaking to, although he is speaking to us. This is first century peasants. If there is a drought, they will die of thirst. If there is a famine, they will die of starvation. If they have no clothing, they will die of exposure. These are not trivial issues for these people. And yet Jesus is still able to stand in front of them and say, these are not things that you should be praying about. As good as they are, as important as they are, God will give those things to you, but you are to seek first the kingdom of God. These are hard words. And Jesus is stressing that if you seek first the kingdom of God, all that you need will be added unto it. He will not leave you alone He will not leave you without. Again, he has given up his son. He will give you all things that you need. Let your speech to God then be kingdom-focused, diligent, watchful, and filled with thanksgiving. In verse 5, however, our passage takes a turn. Paul notes that we were to be walking in wisdom with outsiders, which is simply Paul's designation for those who are unbelievers, those who are outside the church. We are to walk in wisdom with them. He's not being explicit here, but I think that evangelism is on the tip of his, well, 
quill, I suppose, is on the tip of what he's writing with, right? It's on the very tip of his tongue if he were reading it out loud. Evangelism is underneath all of this. After all, the same word that is written here in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, is the exact same word that Paul used for the presentation of the gospel up in verse 3, that he might open a door for the word. It's the same idea. Same idea. What Paul wants is for your presentation of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come from God, that he died for your sins, to not only take your guilt away from you and the wrath of God from you, but also to relieve you of the penalty of sin, to relieve you of the pain of sin as well, to give you freedom from it, that you might live a life in righteousness to God. That is the gospel. And you are to take that message to the world. And how are you to do this? First, you must be mindful. You must be mindful. I swear it was just yesterday I was like 23 years old, right? Now I have three kids. One of them turned 10 recently. Um, she's old. She's an old woman now. At this pace, it won't be long before I'm old and decrepit, although even if that happens, praise be to God, I will still be the youngest elder at this church. <laughs> but that's, that's beside the point. As people are fond of saying life comes at you fast, right? It doesn't take much. Moments, moments stay with you forever. I have pictures in my mind of my kids in specific moments, and they will like forever be frozen there. But the years are not. The years roll. They roll. Paul urges us to redeem the time. We talked last week about labor simply being a commodity, that you are to be a steward of the labor that God has given you. You are to be a steward of the money that God has given you. But friend, you are to be a steward of the time that God has given you as well. Paul urges us to redeem the time. Friend, God has kept you here, not just to mature you on this earth. He has kept you here, not just to mature you, not just to demonstrate the kindness of his mercy in you, although he has done that. He has kept you here so that you might take that mercy, that kindness, and that grace to others as well. What are you doing with your time? How are you spending it? You might respond that it's filled with good things. Good works, possibly, but that's not even the question here. Listen, chocolate is good, but it's not fit for a topping on vegetables. There's a time for each thing in the appropriate amount. A diet of all chocolate will kill your body, and I am fairly certain that a diet of all vegetables will kill your soul. (laughs) Of all the things I said. God has made much of our lives to be filled with pleasurable and good things. But that is not all, and that is not the sum total of what he has made your life for. And that is not why, after saving you, he has kept you here amidst the ruins of sin and problems and frustrations and cares. Why has he kept you here? Why has he not raptured you away? And that's where he wants you to be, and ultimately that's where you will be. You are to be a light to the nations. Be careful that you spend your time well. Paul here is worthy of imitation. He has suffered. He's taken on afflictions. He's struggled to present believers mature in Christ. Christ has given him so much time and Paul has earnestly stressed himself to make sure that he is redeeming as much of it as he possibly can be. This is his urging to you today to you only have so much time here on earth. Use it well, friend. 
This certainly includes your personal witness to the good news. It also means using your time in every respect for these ends. Pray for missionaries. Pray for the IMB. Pray for the North American Mission Board. Pray for those people who are out in the mission field doing what you are possibly not called to do. View the hours that you spend in work not just as a means of making money, but as a means of funding missions and the gospel in the world. Your work, as tedious and as boring as it might be, even even as dull and annoying and you think stupid as it might be, that work that work can have a greater kingdom focus than you ever believed. Use it to pour yourself into the mission field through your work. Secondly, we must be gracious. We must be gracious. This does not just mean human graciousness, but God's graciousness as well. You should always be gracious to people. You should be courteous, you should be kind, and you should be pleasant. These are not just nice things to do in society. These are gospel-centered things that you are to be. Kindness is not just something that the world wants from you. It is something that Christ demands of you. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Do not be a bother. Do not load onto people what they can't bear. Specifically, as these instructions I think are found within the context of evangelism, What it means is that the presentation that you give of the gospel should always be gracious, not just filled with the grace of God, the message of the grace of God, although that is certainly true, but that that gospel presentation should be done winsomely and carefully and kindly. Listen, it's quite clear. We believe that God saves people. We don't. We believe that he does this graciously through the work of his spirit and that our response to him, if we give a response to him, is just that. It is a response. We love God because he first loved us. We confess because he has changed our hearts. We believe that. That is true all the way through. Amen. But while God is sovereign over all things, but... He has allowed his sovereignty to be worked out so that you are to take the gospel to people. That is how this game works. That is how God has set it up. You are the gospel that you have to take to people. Not you just embodying the gospel, but you are the deliverer of the gospel to people. He has given us a part to play. By his own reasoning and through his own mechanisms, he has graced us with the opportunity to share the gospel with others. That means, that means that humans matter in and under the sovereignty of God and that your interaction with people, therefore, matters. If you excuse and blow off your abrasiveness under the sovereignty of God and say that God will save that person if he so chooses, you don't understand the gospel, you don't understand the sovereignty of God, you don't understand how evangelism actually works. We think that God's graciousness works not because it is a mighty force, however much it might be, and it is, but because it's beautiful. So when Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 talks about the mind of unbelievers being opened up like how God has spoken and he says, let there be light and the light shines in the hearts of believers to show the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Right? 
when he says that, it's not just that God is powerful so that when he speaks, things happen. It is that. But it's also that light is beautiful. It is also the picture of glory and beauty. There is power there, but the glory is filled with immense beauty. When we diminish the beauty of the gospel with agitation, anger, hatred, abrasiveness, selfishness, and jealousy, we diminish the gospel. Let us be winsome as we preach the gospel. Let us be gracious in that. The gospel is nothing less than the proclamation of God's extreme grace in Christ, and we have to be gracious when we do it. Lastly, our speech should be wise. Paul here uses a metaphor, one that's fairly misunderstood in Scripture, of salt. We sometimes think of salty language as a four-letter word type of language, but Paul clearly does not mean that here, so you can get that out of your, your minds right now. Basically, what we do when we come to metaphors is we take what we understand of the thing in question, salt, and we apply it to the metaphor, and we try and figure out how it works, right? So what does salt do? Well, salt preserves things, and so we think that our language is to have a preserving effect. We, we know that salt also provides flavor, and so given what I just said about graciousness, but about being winsome, we can say, hey, our, our presentation of the gospel shouldn't be bland and dull. This is certainly true. Never should we believe that a canned gospel presentation is the best way to present the gospel. Simply spurting out rote, memorized facts is not a good gospel presentation. A gospel that springs from a heart on fire will always be more persuasive than a gospel that comes from a moldy file in the back of your brain. But that is not the only thing that this means. Salt also has a great deal of connotation with wisdom in Jewish literature, and it fits well here as well. You are to be wise in how you proclaim the gospel. Listen, the gospel has to be proclaimed to a mother who just lost a son. Differently, vastly differently to a man who is an alcoholic. They're the same gospel, but each gospel has to be emphasized in a different way. Each gospel has to be tailored in a specific way. It is still the true gospel, but the gospel is wide and broad, and it impacts all of life. And you need to be wise in how you interact with people, knowing who they are, what they struggle with, what they fear, what they love, to be able to effectively witness to those people. Certainly within the power of God, the Spirit will move within your gospel presentation as you preach the gospel to people. But that doesn't neglect the fact that you have a duty to do as well, to be winsome, to be careful, to be gracious with how you present the gospel. If we will be the best soul winners we can be, we have to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Paul began his letter saying this, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Thankfulness and prayer. And now Paul is finishing his letter by looking at the Colossians and saying, we want you in thankful prayer to pray for us as well. We must both act and speak in the name of Jesus Christ, giving him glory in all of our interactions, whether at home, in the job, 
at our jobs, in the marketplace. Everything we do needs to be done for the glory of Jesus Christ. As Deuteronomy says, these things should be on the forefront of our minds at all times. Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9, speaking in light of the commandment that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, says this, you shall teach them diligently these precepts to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, on your gates. You are never to be able to walk around without thinking through these things. Everything you do needs to be done for the gospel in the glory of Jesus Christ. Let the gospel impact how you both speak to God and men. Speak, therefore, to men of the gospel. Praying to God with the assurance of the gospel for the things of the gospel. This is what it means, according to Paul, to be mature in Christ. And this is what he has called you for. So whatever you do, church, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Let us pray. Father, we do seek your face today, that you might be pleased with us. We confess that we do not always attend to you in prayer continuously, and when we do, Father, it is often for our own desires and not to contend for your kingdom. So we pray, Father, that you will move in us, that we might be more focused on your kingdom. Give us mouths to utter what truly flows from our hearts, a gospel love for your glory through the powerful ministry of the Spirit and the finished work of Christ Jesus, our Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.